sermon text this morning is going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Thank you. I'm already getting looks like you're really preaching a whole sermon on that short a section. Some of you are like, well, of course he is. Haven't you been here for the last four years? Well, some of you are guests, and just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us this morning. I trust that our time in the Word of God this morning will be an encouragement to you, that it'll be enriching, that it will be enjoyable and challenging. I'd like to start in a word of prayer, knowing that as we listen to the Word of God, we are both entering into an opportunity for both spiritual danger and encouragement. I think sometimes we miss the danger of going to Scripture again and again and not being changed. The Bible says we are self-deceived, not being doers of the Word, but hearers only. We definitely do not want to be a group of people who know what the Bible says, think we do it when we don't. That would be a spiritual deception that leads to our own spiritual loss in the day of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, God uses preaching. He uses the ministry of his word to enliven dead hearts and to transform us into the image of Christ. And so we want to pray that God would do that through the work of his spirit this morning. So let's pray together that God would be gracious to us. Father, thank you so much for, his word, for your word. Thank you for the kindness of the Holy Spirit's ministry that helps us to see and grab a hold of the significance of the scripture. I ask that this morning you would encourage our hearts You'd strengthen our resolve to love one another, that you would help us to be grasped by this scripture so that we might be uh, more committed and more reliably like Christ who loves his precious bride despite the spots and the blemishes and the wrinkles. And in fact, his love secures and sanctifies her from those very blemishes. I ask that you would give us that same Christ-like love within our church. Father, I also ask that this morning that people seeing the goodness of Christ and the call of the church might also see behind that the goodness of their Savior and be more devoted and more loyal to him. We ask that this might bring glory to God our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. We look at this section of Scripture, and, and Paul is recording the second half of a prayer that he's constantly praying for the Philippians. He starts with this uh, encouraging thought of, of how grateful and with what joy he considers the Philippian church. If you look back in verse 3, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. Now, if someone thinks of you and every time they think of you, they're filled with joy and gratitude, that is a mark of living well, isn't it? That's how Paul thinks of the Philippians. Every time I think of you, I am thanking God with joy in my heart because of how Faithful and sweet and good our gospel partnership is. And then we come to the verse we started with this morning in verse 9, and it is my prayer. So he starts with this, I am so thankful, I thank God every time I remember you, this, this recognition of gratefulness and gratitude for God's work through his people, but then also a petition. But I want God to do more in you. And so this morning we look at this apostolic request to God. What does God want for his church? What is this apostle praying for, for this Philippian church? Maybe we can ask more bluntly, what does God want us to do with it? And I would suggest to you the reason this type of prayer is recorded for us is this is not only how we should pray for our church, this is also a pattern for us to live out. That is, we would both be Seeing in this, we need to pray like this. We need to think like this. We need to appeal to God on the basis of his kindness that he would do this among us. And then as we pray that God would do this in us, we are certainly needing to apply that to ourselves and say, God, do this to me. Help me to live up to the high calling of this text. So the major theme of this text is the love of God. You see that in verse, or excuse me, our love in verse 9. It says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Today we're going to talk about the sweet topic 
of love. And unlike Netflix, this is not going to be some cheesy romantic love. This is not going to be some sappy love story. This is the type of love that God expects, demands, and empowers his church to have. It is a love that is not romantic, nor is it familial. This is not a love of a mom to her child. This is the love of believers within the community of believers we call the church. This is a supernatural love. This is a love that is not given to the capacity of someone who does not have Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is a call and a prayer request to a type of love that we only see expressed from sinners to sinners. And we learn it from God himself. So we come to verse 9, we see this, this call to love. And I would say there, there are four observations I want to share with you this morning from this text. I, I think you'll see fairly clearly about the nature of the love believers should have. First, it's an always growing love. It's an always growing love. Look at verse 9 again. It's my prayer that your love abound more and more. Now, he starts with the basis that they already have it. Your love, he's already described his thankfulness for them, and he says, I want your love to grow more and more. It's, it's as though they're, they're already in a position of loving each other. He's using a, a term there that indicates not that they don't have it. It's not like, man, you need to just get some love because you got none. The point is you already, already have love, but not to be satisfied with it. It needs to be growing and increasing. You need more of this love. I just want to turn the table on you just right at the front of this. That means to each one of us, no matter how loving, how generous your heart is, how thoughtful and kind and loving you have been in the past, God is not satisfied and wants you to keep growing in it. This last week, I had the joy of being a stay-at-home working dad. My wife was gone for a couple days, and I got to share the joy of the need to keep a house clean with six kids. And we also had the joy of, of watching two precious girls from our church all day, too. So I had eight kids at the house and no charity to do all the work. <laughs> and I, I felt like this is, this is always cleaning more and more, not loving more and more, cleaning more and more. I would clean, the kids would clean, and we would turn around and be messy again. And every time I turn around, there's shoes somewhere, there's socks on the ground, there's dirty dishes somewhere, there's kids eating fishy crackers everywhere in the house. There, it's just constantly cleaning. At no point could I be like, this house is clean, I'm done. Because the minute you think that, there's more mess. You wake up in the morning, you think the house will be clean? No. It's, it's, they're mess makers. It's amazing, the giftedness of children at making a mess. I'd like to blame it all on them, but I need to own some of the blame there. I'm sure I had my contribution in the mess, too. I, I think growing in love is a similar concept. No matter where we look in our own house, there's areas of love that God is going to call us to grow in. And sometimes it's the addition of new people within the assembly. Sometimes it's the addition of sinners who are sinning against us in the assembly in new ways. There is at no point in your life where you can say, my house of love is clean. I'm good. I have maxed out my love meter. I don't need to love more. I'm mature. I've grown to my full height of love. You will never say that. And so the... the the call to each of us is to have an always growing love, to never think we're there, to never be okay with our expression of love. I think it then is required of us that we ask the question, what exactly does he mean by love here? Like, we could think of it this way, love for God, or maybe affection for others. What exactly is he calling us to? In a very similar statement in 1 Thessalonians, I think we get some insight. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13, he's, he's asking the same type of thing for the uh, Thessalonians when he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And then he adds a phrase he doesn't have in Philippians, but I think it helps us kind of steal it from Thessalonians and move it to Philippians. Love for one another. 
Now, he is talking about love inside of the body of Christ to other believers. He's talking about how we care for and think about one another. In fact, look over in chapter 2 with me. I think you see this somewhat defined. He calls them in verse 1 of chapter 2 to a love. But then look, look in verse 2 of chapter 2. He calls them to be of the same mind, having the same love, being full of a full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. I think we have a helpful insight into what he's asking for the Philippian church. He's asking for them to be others-centered, to consider the needs and the, and the values of one another, to help to serve one another, to care for the needs of others, to be thoughtful about the interests of others, not just our own self-interests. In other words, there is a deliberate and purposeful ask that we give to ourselves constantly, and that is, what do they need from me? What would actually serve their best interests? How can I help them to pursue what is good in this life? How can I minister and care for their needs? It's a call to be considering and thoughtful of one another. And if we could um, maybe ask the question, what does it look like in the negative? Sometimes that helps us define. Maybe you could say it this way. Uh, Someone who is selfish, who brags, who's proud, who's full of division, who fights others, who divides over the smallest differences of doctrine, who looks down on other people's opinions, who's interrupting and doesn't listen to others, who is not praying for other people within the church, is failing to live up to this category of love. If you're a fighter, you're not loving. If when people disagree with you, you always start with they are wrong in your mind, it's an arrogant attitude that leads to division. When you major on the minors, and you make every small issue an issue in which you lose respect for or grow distant from others, you are not loving. If you are easily offended, quickly hurt, and I do not mean by that you're a sensitive person, I mean you allow your sensitivity to drive a wedge between you and another. You are not large-hearted and willing to overlook others' failures and weaknesses and... and, um, just frailties of human existence, you may not be loving well. I think for each of us, the expression of lovelessness and expression of love will have our personality flavoring it, and that's okay. It's okay to be individual. It's not okay to excuse your lovelessness as a personality foible. It's sin. Here's the call. We're to always be growing in love. So no no matter where you're at, if you've been living the Christian life for 40 years and you've been growing in grace your whole life, you're not there yet. And if you're a brand new believer and you're like, man, I don't know the first thing about helping anyone else spiritually, that's okay. We are all moving the same direction. The question is not how much you've achieved in this life, but what direction your feet are pointed. You are pointed towards loving and serving one another. That's the call upon all of us today. Okay, always growing in love. Number two, it is a biblically defined love. I've already begun kind of helping you see how Paul uses that concept of care and love for one another in Philippians, but look at his prayer. He doesn't say something like this, I hope you all feel warm towards each other. What does he call us to? Look again in verse nine. My prayer that your love may abound more and more with what? Knowledge and discernment. These are not words that you probably whisper to your wife as you're heading um, off to a romantic rendezvous together. This is not like, hey, we're going to have a second honeymoon, and I'm going to love you with all the knowledge and discernment I can give you. Right? Like, have you ever written that on a little note card to your spouse? I love you with knowledge and discernment. Yours always. It doesn't seem very affectionate because, in fact, his point is it's not. It's a love that does, that serves, but it's moved in a filter and in in a line of 
knowledge and discernment. Knowledge speaks to the concern that our love be filled with a scriptural truth and guided by what God says is loving. Maybe you recognize that within the last few years, there is a public debate about love. I don't know if any of you caught it. I think what was fascinating was how both sides thought they were loving. I think that should actually give us a, a dose of humility, but on one side, it was very loving to take the vaccine. On the other side, it was very loving to not take the vaccine. So who was correct? You probably all thought you were correct, because I know I was correct. So if you agreed with me, you were correct. Now, the reality is, though, if you could jump into the other person's world and recognize that they were motivated perhaps out of a sincere desire to care for others. Some moms refused to give their children a vaccine because they felt it was dangerous. Some moms gave their children a vaccine because they thought the virus was dangerous. Which one truly loved their child? I think we all recognize love is complex. And therefore, God says we must love in knowledge. You know what defines biblical love is the Bible not your feelings. So love was used often as a club to get us to do something or not do something that someone else thought we should do. The way to defend and guard our conscience is to ask ourselves, what does Scripture teach us? How does God call us to engage society in a way in which we are doing it right? In other words, the, the end of the debate about what to do begins and ends with a correct knowledge of God's word. And if you don't know what God's word says about it, then you probably don't have the moral authority to say it is loving to do or not do something. And within that debate, one of the things that was often lacking was a definition of love. More precisely, a biblical definition of love. It was the presumption that love is doing what I think it is. Love is doing what I want you to do. And that is nothing more than what the four-year-old says to mom. In the grocery store, I want this toy. And mom says, no, you can't have it. And the boy basically says, mom, if you love me, you'll get me this toy. Mom says, no, because I love you, I will not give you the toy. And they're having a theological debate. And no one's saying, here's what God's word says. Now, here's, here's the concern that we should have in church. Within the body of believers, we can often find division without Scripture giving us a guiding light about how or what should be done. How we speak to others, what we speak to others, how we serve them, with, with what we do for them, God gives us really clear definitions on a lot of this, warns us away from things. Let me just give you a biblical example. The Bible says that if someone doesn't work, they should not. That's in the context of people refusing to work. So you know what's not loving? To give someone food when they're lazy. I'm going to tell you, that lands like a lead balloon in our culture. It just doesn't float. That feels really wrong in our culture. And yet that's God's word. So here we have a, a hard time loving biblically because it doesn't feel loving. So let's go back. Our love must be filled with what? Knowledge. And he continues, and discernment. Discernment is the ability to, to be able to evaluate between two uh, options, that, and both might seem on the surface to be good. You know, the, the question of this or that this is a common question maybe young people get. Should I marry her? It's a question of discernment. Singleness or her? It takes a level of discernment. There's some basics. Is she a Christian? Does she look like a Christian and love the Lord? If the answer is no to those questions, it's like, well, you clearly have some struggles with discernment. Then it gets down to particular details about Things that may not be inconsequential, and it's still a discernment question, isn't it? Maybe you're valuing the wrong things. Maybe you're not valuing the right things. 
Our love must be biblically defined. Look again in verse 9. Abound more and more, so we have this ever-growing love, but it's got this biblical rails, and like a train, it does not get off these rails or it's wrecked with knowledge and discernment so that we approve what is excellent. The idea there is superior or best. As we walk through life and we constantly have the challenge of engaging one another in such a way that we are actually loving them, not making them feel good, not making them feel loved, and not doing something that makes us feel loving, but biblically with knowledge and discernment, doing what's best. Best for what? What what, what is the ultimate superior thing to do in any given circumstance is a question of biblical knowledge and biblical discernment, picking the ideal thing. What's your goal, though? I think that leads us to the next flow of logic in the argument here that Paul is praying about. He's like, I want you to grow more and more, but your love needs to be defined biblically Then we come to verse 9 at the end when it says, Knowledge and discernment so that you approve what is excellent and so be, look what it says, it says pure and blameless when. Pure and blameless when? The day of Jesus Christ or the, the, the judgment seat of Christ is the point. In fact, if you were to go to the end of verse 11, ultimately to the praise and glory of God. Right, so, so he has called us to an ever-growing love that's defined biblically with knowledge and discernment being the application of how we process biblical truth and live it out, knowledge and discernment. And then he says, because we are pursuing divine approval. Okay, so it's always growing, biblically defined, and it's a love that has divine approval. You know what approval we aren't pursuing then? I think there are, there are two common ways we pursue approval. We could pursue approval of society, or we could perhaps pursue approval within our homes, or, or an extending of that, our church family. And ultimately, these are false measures. Right? These are false measures. What is the measure of the approval you should go after? Whose approval are you seeking? Look at the text again. So that you may approve what is excellent, and thereby we are pure and blameless before whom? Christ himself. So my goal is to do do life, to love others in such a way that I am being guarded by the scriptural admonitions of what love looks like and how sacrificial it is and how other-centric it is, but there is a biblical expression of it. I do this to please not the person, but their Savior. Now, this, this actually equips us to love when it's challenging to love others. It equips us to love others when they don't feel very loved by what we do when we love them. We discipline our children. Rarely do they, they say things like, man, dad, this just feels so loving. Right? If, if we ground a child from a cell phone, I don't hear my teenage child be saying something along the lines of, dad, this is one of those moments where I just, I just see how much you love us. No, usually what I hear is like, that long? Seriously? Dad, my friend got grounded. They only lost their phone for two days, and you said two weeks? And there's this outcry of, this hurts. Therefore, maybe you don't love me like Johnny's parents love him. And of course, at that point, I say, do you want four weeks? Will that help you feel loved? (laughs) No, I try not to be too sarcastic in moments like that. My sarcasm is usually not very helpful. But I think thoughts like that. Look in this text. It tells us that pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Let me just encourage you with this thought. This is not holding before us a standard we cannot attain. Like, how discouraging is that? That's like telling my three-year-old, dunk a basketball and I'll take you out to McDonald's. (laughs) 
Like, really, Dad? I will earn a million dollars before I dunk at this height. Like, like, it's just an impossibility. And sometimes I think in our Christian life, we, we, we look at climbing a Mount Everest of spiritual impossibility and we just collapse in defeat before we ever take the first step. That is not what God is asking of us here. He calls us to be ready for the day of Jesus Christ. We will be pure and blameless. The idea of purity speaks of undiluted, unalloyed. That means there's no mixture of anything else in it. It's a love that Christ looks at and says, it's good and pure and clean. And don't you want to love like that? And don't you ever wonder about your own motives? Have you ever done something and thought, now did I really do that for them or did I do that to make myself look good to them? Anyone else ever psychoanalyze their motives and just get tied up in a knot? Now here's, here's the expectation is that you and I can live in such a way that we love others with purity and blamelessness. It is a divinely approved love. It's refined so that what comes out is clean and good. And I, think, I think a lot of the rest of the book of Philippians drives us towards that concept of knowledge. In fact, you get Philippians 4, it's often mentioned in, in verse 8. Think about things that are true. And you go through that list, and he has the idea of excellent and praiseworthy. These are the things we think about, and it leads us to loving in such a way that we also love with purity and righteous thinking and moral excellence. That we call others to that, and we express those same virtues in how we care for others. Again, if I were to use parenting as an example, there is a type of love, and I'll use air quotes around that so you know I'm not talking about a biblical love, We're using a type of love that leads to a child being ruined. We might say it spoils them. And like meat gone rancid, their character is rotten and spoiled by a type of love that doesn't do what's difficult for the child and best for the child, but what the child wants. And it it brings ruination of character. And that can happen within the church too. So so when we talk about pure and blameless love, it's a concern for this person's best interest that drives us to act sacrificially at deep loss to ourselves, if necessary so that their good is promoted and at the day of Jesus Christ we are blameless and God himself gets glory and praise. So how does that happen? Okay, just reviewing. How do you not quit if it's an ever-growing love? Some of you might feel discouraged on just that first point. Really, it's always growing. I'm never at rest. Now, there are multiple things I do in my life that I've never really felt much fatigue over. I always do them. Sleep. You know what I'm looking forward to this afternoon? Taking a nice Sunday afternoon nap. You know what I'll do tonight? I'll sleep. You know what I'm going to do tomorrow night? In that fact, I, I can pretty much guarantee you, I will sleep every day this week. I'm that good. Like, I'm always working at sleep. Eating is another good one. I have yet to stop it. In fact, I really don't get tired of it. If anything, I need to get tired of it. There are things we do constantly and frequently, and we don't experience fatigue in them. We love others with an always growing love. We define and limit and put rails on our love that are, that are guided by and directed by the Scripture itself. We do so in such a way that God is pleased. We are not pursuing the, the approval of culture or people around us. You're pursuing Christ's approval himself so that God the Father is praised and glorified. How do we do that then? Look at, look at verse 11. It says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes how? Through, it comes through Christ. That is, the power that drives our love is not effort, just brute effort but is a spiritually empowered effort through the 
work of Christ. And just to be clear here, the righteousness, the fruit of righteousness is, well, Scripture uses two ideas for righteousness. There is kind of a status, and, and there's a behavior. You can use those two ideas. This status speaks to the standing we have before God that has been granted, given to us entirely of grace. We have not earned it. We have not worked for it at all. On the basis of that status, we, we do things that are righteous. We act. We think. We sing. We pray. We serve. We love. That stuff is actual righteousness. And it's praiseworthy. Right? Like, there is, there is at times a, a way in which people speak of themselves as like, you know, I'm not a good person. There's nothing in me that's any good. I don't do any good. That is not biblical Christianity. You have been given new birth. You are a new creature created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You do not ever do those without the grace and, and strength of the spirit, uh, excuse me, the spirit of Christ supporting you. So in this text, this call to this love of others, it's a love that is empowered by the grace of Christ himself. Maybe something like the Apostle Paul would be words we could say one day. He says, I have labored more abundantly, speaking of the other apostles, I have labored more abundantly than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I think it speaks to the tension. The tension being this, you will not love others if you don't want to. It's not as though we are robotic creatures and God has a divine remote control and is just making us do stuff and we can't help it. The call of a verse like this is that God would energize within us a desire to serve one another, a desire to do good for one another. And God giving us that desire then empowers us to actually do it. There are times where I'm sure on the way to work, you're thinking you don't really want to go to work. Some of you are teachers and you're about ready to head back into the war zone. About ready to enter back into that place of probably trial, but also joy. Some of you were sympathizing a little bit too much with me about the never-ending job of cleaning a home. And the thought of going home to a messy house and having to clean just exhausts you. And some of you look at people within the church and the call to love them, and you feel it's impossible. They've hurt you too deeply. Or they're such weird creatures, you don't really want to spend time with them. Or they have a knack of just saying the worst thing with the best motives. And you just don't feel like you can be around them very long without getting your feelings hurt. Or maybe, just on a personal level, you don't enjoy them. Maybe you don't think their needs are very significant compared to yours. Maybe you feel like you're in spiritual tailspins. And you have no ability to look beyond your own needs. I do not find in this text anything that indicates you get a pass. What I find in this text is you get divine grace. You don't need a pass. You need faith. You don't need to quit loving others. You need grace. So when it says that we have a fruitful life filled with righteousness, through Christ, it is saying so much about the Christian hope. How, how can you be righteous at all? Through Christ. How can you have this fruitful harvest of righteousness? Through Christ. You know what you can't do on your own? Love the bunch of people in this room. You're not going to do it. Not biblically. Not sacrificially. Not with a, an others-centered Lack of self-interest. So here, here's the text before us. I am praying that you would never stop growing in love, that your love would be guarded and defined and moved biblically. 
so that Christ approves of you and you have a life filled with acts and thoughts and deeds and words of genuine love. Because the power that generates that is Christ. I would suggest to you that in this text, then, the pattern is also God. And if you look at that last line there, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. How does the church praise and glorify God? Well, first, let's be clear. God does not get additional glory. It's not as though God becomes more glorious the more we do something. What happens is that God's glory is seen in the world by people who carry his character. Right? Like, like, I look like God in how I sacrificially love for someone else. They see the divine attribute of a self-sacrificing, others-improving love. And they go, oh, that's how God loves. That's who their God is. Right? Like, I am in some very limited, feeble, frail sense, a window through which the world is able to view the love of Christ. So when I embody a sacrificial love that promotes in others a godliness, when I care for others the way Christ would, when I love in such a way that God's word is honored and God's son approves, then people see Christ's love. And through me, Christ is honored. I certainly am not able to improve his glory, but I am able to communicate it to the world by loving his people. It is not insignificant that what generates forgiveness is love, Ephesians 4 and 5. It is not surprising that out of love God sends his son into the world. It is through love that the Christian has security despite our failures. And just think about just those three thoughts and put them together in the context of community and think about how ungodly division is generally. What does God do to sinners who are hostile to him in Romans 5? God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we, we move to the church context, and all of a sudden it's like, I think I'm going to have to leave the church, Pastor. Huh, what's going on? Well, Betty Lou said this about my perfect teenage boy. <laughs> I got so many issues with you saying you're perfect teenage boy. So if you talk to Betty Lou, well, I don't think I can face her. <laughs> okay. Can you imagine, like, God in heaven acting like that? I just think I'm going to burn the whole world. I just can't even face them. <laughs> like, like, how is that embodying the love of God to sinners who actively do sin? God demonstrates his love that while we were sinners, he died. Right? Like, Christ died for the ungodly. He did not die for righteous people. And you don't want to be part of a church with unrighteous people? Does that even make sense to you? And the answer is no. You're a Christian. You get it. And yet that's how we feel. And on that basis, we move to a different church. And the only reason we join that church is we don't know them yet. <laughs> like, I guarantee you, however much money I will match, they're sinners. Guaranteed. And yet, the very thing that causes us to leave a church is some of the audacity to point their sin gun at us and pull the trigger. That's who we are. That's who I am. That's who each one of us are. We are sinners. God sent his son to broker forgiveness. Right? He sent his son to die so that we would not suffer for our sins, perish. And yet, sometimes the very thing that causes brokenness within the church is we want people to be shamed and suffer because they had the audacity to do something to disturb our tranquility. Like saying our son is bad. Or look down on us or not talk to us or be rude to us. 
This text is calling us to a noble love. So let me just end on a few, I think, attainable applications here. If it's to be always growing, then you and I ought to be very purpose-filled to love others. If you want a good target, think of all the people that you naturally don't like and love them first. So all you Dallas fans, I'm making commitment now. I'll try to love you. Now, there are people who I, I mentioned before that we just naturally don't enjoy being around, that are difficult for us, or maybe they've hurt our feelings, or we have a tendency to just not appreciate the way they come at things, and those are the very people God calls us to work at loving. And because it's biblically defined, let us be very diligent to ask the scriptures how we should love others. Because sometimes loving someone is a rebuke because they're living in sin. Sometimes it's encouragement. We see someone with, like, shoulders slumped. We encourage them. We try, to, we try to help them look to Christ as their hope. We don't say, you got this. We say, he's got you. And however that sounds, we've got to say something like that. I mean, the world is filled with a lot of self-hope, which is actually hopeless. That's not what we need in our church. We need to call people to fix their eyes to Christ, who gives us the strength. And that would be a third application. Are you praying that God would grow your love? I just think through the logic here. I am praying that you would grow in love because we all need to grow in love. God says that he strengthens us or that we are righteous through Christ. So what should all of us be doing? Asking God for the grace of Christ to help us love others. Because this is a supernatural need that I have. As in, this is a need I have that is only answered by supernatural divine grace. I will never love you by self-discipline. I will never gin up enough goodness in me to be good to you, biblically. And finally, a desire to be approved by God instead of others. Man, like, we are so driven to please people. I, I think half of the anxiety over COVID was not a, a concern about health, but was a concern for approval. And man, we were quick to give our disapproval. If someone was on the wrong side of the mask issue from you, don't tell me you didn't give them a stink eye. Can we all have enough humility to look in the mirror and say, maybe I didn't love well? And the reason I use COVID as an example is, to me, is one of the most humbling experiences I've ever faced in the church. To see good and godly people struggle with love. To see people struggle with how to express disagreement lovingly. To express a concern for someone else's welfare in a way that was both loving without judgment. And again, I, I use it as an example that exposed how righteous we think we are when the world is smooth and the sailing is good. But one little breeze of a virus hits our country and it's like, oh, under that placid surface of righteousness, there are sea monsters of lovelessness lurking. And if you didn't see any of those monsters in your own heart, I would encourage you, look within. And just to be honest, with the elections coming, it won't be long before snarky, snide comments show up on social media. It's to be expected of the unbeliever. It should not be echoed in the church. I would assume if someone disagrees with me politically and they're a faithful believer in Christ, that the disagreement is something we should talk about privately and respectfully and with love. Not blast on social media. If someone disagrees with me, I just doubt their faith. Wow. I'm glad you doubt their faith. That's a pretty strong accusation to launch on social media. If you really doubt their faith, shouldn't you talk to them personally and call them to follow Christ? 
So I'm, I'm just thinking this passage is very timely for us. The election cycle is starting. No one should feel that, I don't think, I'm not on social media enough to really police this thing, so just, I'm just saying, if you're getting pinched right now, it's not because I saw something Friday, I'm like, ooh, need to talk to John about that. I don't think we've started that cycle quite yet, but it's coming. And think about that. Now you testify to the glory of God in the way you talk on social media. You show the world what you are like and what your Savior is like on social media. You're not as anonymous as you think. And sniping people from the safety of your phone can be incredibly distant and therefore you don't feel unloving about it and the whole world is witnessing you trash another believer. Dependence and a desire, desire to be approved by God. By God. Not by culture. Not even by your church or its pastors. Our, our best moment of pursuing life is by being so concerned about Christ that if someone were to ask us the why, we would simply need to point to the words of Christ, the heart of Christ, the behavior of Christ, as revealed in the Old and New Testaments. And that would be our defense. And with that, we would stand. Like, can you defend why you do what you do? Can you defend the words you spoke from Scripture? That would be the rails, the filter on our love. And I think oftentimes the filter in our love is we just think we're right. I'll get off my applicational soapbox. Remind you once again, eyes fixed on Christ is the measure of what is good. So that on the day of Christ we're proved. So that God gets glory. So that God gets praise. Not us. Not our political candidate. Not our opinion. We want Christ and God to receive glory from our lives. We want our church to magnify the glory of Christ. We want Christ to receive praise from his people. We do not want to collect praise. And so we live like Christ. We love like Christ. Just as a, a thought of reflection, how much did God's love cost Christ? You know what keeps me most often from loving others? It's expensive time and my own peace, my own privacy, my own money, my own labor. I am glad we have a very, very generous God who loves his bride despite her spots and blemishes. You read Ephesians 5, right? But his love is not without regard to those things. He loves her to sanctify those things from her. So, so if, I, if I can think of it like this, God loves an, I can say it more clearly, Christ loves an ugly bride. And if we can't love the church who is ugly, then we are not like Christ yet. And we need to grow more and more in our love. And yet Christ's love does what to those spots and wrinkles and blemishes? His love is actually leading her to holiness and beauty and purity and the removal of those blemishes and wrinkles through the word of God. So how do we love others? We love ugly people by getting them to be transformed by the grace of Christ through his word. That's one of the ways we love people very practically. And so when people are struggling, we give them the scriptures. When people are hurting, we remind them the hope that the scriptures give us. When people need correction, we go to the scriptures and we show them the word of Christ. And in that way, Christ approves of us, approves of them, and that is genuine love. I pray that your love would grow more and more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it redefines love as something that is guarded and guided by knowledge and truth and discernment. Father, I pray that our church would grow in this area of love and knowing that each one of us, no matter how loving we were yesterday, still needs to grow tomorrow. Help us to serve the church, to love her, 
And despite her ugliness and blemishes, despite her failures and struggles, we would love the people within this body, love the people that you've joined us to. And in fact, Lord, their sin would never threaten our commitment to serve and care for, to help, to pray for, and to be with. Lord, help us to love our church like Christ has loved her. We thank you for Christ's presence with us, and we ask that those that were not able to join us today would join us next week, knowing that one of the ways we express love is just by being present. Lord, help us to be sacrificial, never holding ourselves above others, but to continually pursue others' interests and presume that they are more important than we think we are. Lord, help us to love like Christ has loved us. In that way, Father, we pray that you receive praise and glory as believers and unbelievers, as friends, as onlookers, see the goodness and the sweetness of Christ's love for us manifested in our behavior to one another. Lord, help our homes to be filled with the sweet love of Christ that we might sacrifice for the good of our family. Lord, help our neighbors to see that our care for them and our concern for their spiritual state is an act of love, not an act of self-righteousness or judgmentalism. Lord, help us to love our neighbors by praying for them, by seeking their salvation, by speaking, them, speaking to them of the goodness of Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who is a stranger to your saving and sanctifying love, that you would redeem them today. That recognizing how far they fall short of the measure of love, they might see that you are loving. You have loved sinners. You have redeemed them, and you have done so because you love them. Lord, I pray that they would pursue right and good restoration with you through the forgiveness that Christ offers by his death. In Jesus' name, amen.